Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. When I say we, I mean myself and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. How are you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. Hello, everyone. So this time we are looking at 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai. So this was released in London on October 2nd, 1957. And the wide releases in the UK were October 11th, 1957. Wide release in the United States was December 14th, 1957. It was directed by David Lane. The screenplay was by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson based on the novel Bridge Over the River Kwai by Pierre Boulle, who may be better known for being the author of Planet of the Apes. And borrowing the plot, and by borrowing I mean stealing wholesale, as listed on Wikipedia, in early 1943, British POWs arrive at a Japanese prison camp in Burma, led by Colonel Nicholson. One of the other prisoners he meets is Commander Shears of the U.S. Navy, who describes the horrific conditions. Nicholson forbids any escape attempts because they were ordered by headquarters to surrender and escapes could be seen as a defiance of orders. Dense jungle surrounding the camp renders escape virtually impossible. Colonel Sado, the camp commandant, informs the new prisoners they will all work, even officers, on the construction of a railway bridge over the River Kwai that will connect Bangkok and Rangoon. Nicholson objects, informing Sado the Geneva Conventions exempt officers from manual labor. After the enlisted men are marched to the bridge site, Sato threatens to have the officers shot until Major Clifton, the British medical officer, warns Sato there are too many witnesses for him to get away with murder. Sato leaves the officers standing all day in the intense heat. That evening, the officers are placed in a punishment hut while Nicholson is locked in an iron box after getting beaten as punishment. Shears escapes and is wounded. He wanders into a Siamese village, is nursed back to health, and eventually arrives in the British colony of Ceylon. With a deadline for completion in May, the work on the bridge is a disaster. The prisoners work as little as possible and sabotage what they can. In addition, Japanese engineering plans are poor. Should Sato fail to meet his deadline, he would be obliged to commit ritual suicide. Desperate, he uses the anniversary of Japan's 1905 victory in the Russo-Japanese War as an excuse to save face and announce a general amnesty, releasing Nicholson and his officers and exempting them from manual labor. Nicholson is shocked by the poor job being done by his men and orders the building of a proper bridge, intending it to survive the war and stand as a tribute to the British Army's ingenuity for centuries to come. Clifton objects, believing this to be collaboration with the enemy. Shears is enjoying his hospital stay in Ceylon when British Major Wharton invites him to join a commando mission to destroy the bridge before it is completed. Shears tries to get out of the mission by confessing that he impersonated an officer as a POW, expecting better treatment from the Japanese. Warden responds that he already knew and that the U.S. Navy has agreed to transfer him to the British Army, along with Shears receiving a commission of major 
to avoid major embarrassment. Realizing he has no choice, Shears volunteers. The commandos parachute into Burma. Warden is wounded in an encounter with a Japanese patrol and has to be carried on a litter. He, Shears, and Joyce reach the river in time with the assistance of Siamese women bearers and their village chief, Kunye. Under the cover of darkness, Shears and Joyce plant explosives on the bridge towers. A train carrying important dignitaries and soldiers is scheduled to be the first to cross the bridge the following day, and Warden's goal is to destroy both. By daybreak, the river level has dropped, exposing the wire connecting the explosives to the detonator. Nicholson spots the wire and brings it to Sato's attention. As the train approaches, they hurry down the riverbank to investigate. Joyce, manning the detonator, breaks cover and stabs Sato to death. Nicholson yells for help while attempting to stop Joyce from reaching the detonator. When Joyce is mortally wounded by Japanese fire, Shears comes to assist, but is himself shot. Recognizing the dying Shears, Nicholson exclaims, What have I done? Warden fires a mortar, wounding Nicholson. The dazed colonel stumbles toward the detonator and falls on the plunger, blowing up the bridge and sending the train hurtling into the river. Warren's mission is completed, but he feels guilt at having to kill his own men to do so. Witnessing the carnage, Clifton shakes his head, muttering, Madness! Madness! That is the basic plot. So, what was your history with this film? To recap people who don't remember the end of our last episode. I don't think I had seen... I had thought that I had seen it before. If I had seen it before, it was when I was very young. I definitely knew it for it, its music, and, you know, we could talk about that a little bit more later. It probably has some of the most recognizable film music ever in it. But it, if I had or hadn't seen it before, I certainly didn't remember much about it beyond the tune and the fact that Alec Guinness was, uh, that Alec Guinness was in it. Um, what about you, Blaine? Uh, this is my first exposure. I had actually been resistant to it because one of my favorite films of the decade, and quite probably the single favorite film of the decade, also came out in 1957. But we'll we'll get to that when we get to the awards. So I had a, a bit of a grudge. It was like, you know, when we had Rob Kelly on to talk about how green was my valley, talking about how long it had taken him to see that because of his love of Citizen mm -hmm. Kane. As followers of his Citizen Kane Minute podcast will now be very well aware. And those who listen might hear a familiar voice. Was it episode five, Trey? Yep. It, as of when we are recording this, episode five came out just uh, last week. I had a great time talking with Rob. Hopefully we'll do it again on another topic in the future, but uh, definitely check that out. It's a great podcast. All right. So shall we just dig into the awards now then? or? Well, I, I just wanted to know in general what your impression of Bridge on the River Kwai was. Like it, if you put aside what it was competing against overall, what did you think of the film? Okay. Um, I will say that in a lot of the years we've looked at, this would be the hands-down winner. I'll not reveal whether I believe it should have won in 1957 yet, but it is a very well-made film, and a lot of it, it's one of those films that has a very slow build, but then the last few minutes have a huge amount of emotional payoff. 
So I doubt that this script would be filmed as a two hour and 40 minute film today. I think they would, they could keep every line of dialogue and edit it down by about 15 to 20 minutes because there are some naturalistic acting pauses mm -hmm. and things like that. The performances are great, particularly from Holden Guinness Hawkins and Hayakawa. So William Holden plays Shears, Alec Guinness plays Colonel Nicholson, Jack Hawkins plays Major Warden, and hopefully this is a decent approximation to the name, Sasui Hayakawa plays Colonel Sato. The others, there's no bad performances in it. It's another one that's very heavy in the male cast, but that's not as out of place in a war film because of the sexist policies that were in place during World War II as far as military service was concerned. Right. You wouldn't have a woman serving overseas in a combat role. Yeah, and certainly not in a unit that was predominantly men. So they, they could have beefed up a little more. I mean, Shears meets a nurse that he becomes romantically involved in, and there there are women in it, but none of them have prominent roles. There's only a brief period of time where that nurse was relevant, and she was fairly prominent for those few minutes. And then the women that were helping them at the end did not speak English. So they were there. They played active roles. The story would not have gone forward without them. But they didn't get chances to do much beyond smiling at the right people. I really liked it. I will say, over the past two years as I've watched different films, either for this podcast or for my own personal viewing projects, William Holden is one of those actors who I think has been forgotten, who I've rediscovered from the 50s. I agree with you that I, I can't find anything technically wrong with his performance, but there's just something about the character of Major Sears that takes me out of the movie. It, I found his scenes in Ceylon much less engaging than what was going on back at the work camp. Yeah, I, I can see that. And some of it, he seems detached and not a soldier, so I... You know, feels to me like maybe he was one of the ones who was drafted, you know, but he's not really engaged and he's he's lost his faith in the military if he ever had it. But something in his performance, he didn't seem like he'd been through the hardships of camp. The movie starts with him bribing the captain, so he's mm -hmm. had better treatment than others, and we can see how that worked. I didn't necessarily take it as such when I watched it, but in some of the reading I've done since... A lot of people take this to be an indictment of colonialism and an indictment of the British Empire in particular. Did any of that come through to you while you watched it? Not specifically the British Empire. I did feel that it you know, it it didn't really show the military in the best light when we start off saying yeah, we've surrendered. We're in this camp, but you're not going to make the officers work, are you? Like, you know, so that was kind of a, a, a touch against Nicholson, which you know maybe in the Geneva Convention, but it still felt like, well, why would they be excluded in the first place? Why would they just have administrative roles? So I, yeah, I didn't feel it was targeting Britain specifically, but it didn't seem to to show the military because they're 
they're complaining about how irrational Sato is, but Nicholson is just as irrational. And this is something that was written. I mean, Pierre Boulle, I, I didn't know much about his life before this. I knew that I had read Planet of the Apes, which is worth reading even if you're familiar with the movie. It's a different story with some common elements, but that there's a, a period of capture and imprisonment in there that was thematically similar. So I looked up Pierre Boulle on Wikipedia and that says that at the outbreak of World War II, he enlisted with the French army in Indochina. And after German troops occupied France, he joined the Free French Mission in Singapore. During the war, he was a supporter of Charles de Gaulle. He served as a secret agent under the name Peter John Rule and helped the resistance movement in China, Burma, and French Indochina. And in 1943, he was captured by Vichy France loyalists on the Mekong River and was subjected to severe hardship and forced labor. Mm. So he was later made a chevalier, and he described his war experiences in a nonfiction book called My Own River Kwai. So I, I think that there's, you know, kind of a, a therapeutic aspect for him entering, or you know, filling in the this the story because I, I think a lot of his personal experiences in that forced labor probably informed it. So I don't know, given that. He ended up leaving the service with honors and he stayed in touch with his military contacts. I don't know that he was trying to slight the military. I just think he was representing his experiences and they were not positive experiences so that it can turn the audiences against the military. Do, do you think maybe, and I know this is going to sound odd because I'm, I'm well aware that David Lean himself was... British, but do you think maybe that was some of David Lean's proclivities or relationships coming into play? It, I, I know that he and Guinness were frequent collaborators, but it, it seemed like there was a lot of tension between them in the shoot. You know, I, I'm not really sure exactly who we're supposed to think is the protagonist. Is it Shears or is it Nicholson? But it, it seemed like behind the scenes, you know, there was a lot of preferential treatment given to Holden, whereas Lean was rougher on Guinness, and I'm wondering if that somehow came through in the film. It, it might be. So I, I don't know that much about David Lean. I know he is one of the most respected British directors, but... Yeah, it that what you're suggesting is entirely possible. Well, it, it was just to the point to where I, you know, I was doing some reading on the film and people were talking about his issues working with the British actors versus the American actors, and it got to a point to where I had to check myself. I was like, wait a minute, David Lean's British, isn't he? And I had to double check because, you know, I, we haven't discussed his work. Uh, a lot, but he's had some films that have been nominated in the past, and you know he'll have some that'll be nominated again in the future. But but it it, it was severe enough that it had me double check myself on what his nationality was. And some of that could be the differences between the British and the American systems. At this point, in the American systems, it was already quite normal to be doing twelve and fourteen hour workdays, six days a week. While in the British system, it was very normal to be doing a regular 40-hour work week, five days, eight hours a day, and 
If that means rescheduling the release of your product, well, then you reschedule the release of your product. Whereas in North America, once your release date is set, that is your release date, and you need to you need some serious the compelling reasons to convince the studios to change it. Speaking of Planet of the Apes, just take a look at what happened to the quote-unquote Tim Burton version. Sure. Which Burton was not at all happy with. He says it's the last time he will ever agree to direct a film when the movie posters already are in the, the lobbies. So anything else before we run through the award lists? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, the these 30th annual Academy Awards were held on March 26, 1958 at the RKO Pantages Theater. Hosted by Bob Hope, Rosalind Russell, David Niven, James Stewart, Jack Lemmon, and Clarence Nash as Donald Duck. Directed by Trevor Newman. So, Best Motion Picture clearly went to Bridge on the River Kwai. Other nominations were Twelve Angry Men, Peyton Place, Sayonara, and Witness for the Prosecution. Best Director went to David Lean for Bridge on the River Kwai. Beating out Sidney Lumet for Twelve Angry Men, Mark Robson for Peyton Place, Joshua Logan for Sayonara, and Billy Wilder for Witness for the Prosecution. Best Actor, Alec Guinness, Bridge on the River Kwai. Beating out Marlon Brandon in Sayonara, Anthony Franciosa for A Hatful of Rain, Charles Lawton for Witness for the Prosecution, and Anthony Quinn for Wild as the Wind. Best Actress went to Joanne Woodward for The Three Faces of Eve, beating out Deborah Kerr for Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, Anna Magnani for Wild as the Wind, Elizabeth Taylor for Rain Tree Country, and Lana Turner for Peyton Place. Best Supporting Actor went to Red Buttons for Sayonara, beating out Vittorio De Sica for Farewell to Arms, Sasui Hayakawa for Bridge on the River Kwai, Arthur Kennedy for Peyton Place, and Russ Tamblin for Peyton Place. Best Supporting Actress went to Miyoshi Umeki for Sayonara, beating out Carolyn Jones for The Bachelor Party, Elsa Lanchester for Witness for the Prosecution, Hope Lang for Peyton Place, and Diane Varsi for Peyton Place. The Best Story and Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. Notice we've had changes in the writing awards this year. And these seem to be the versions that we have today. The Best Screenplay that Directly for the Screen went to Designing Women, written by George Wells, beating out the work for Funny Face, Ivitaloni, Man of a Thousand Faces, and The Tin Star. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, specifically to Michael Wilson, Carl Foreman, and Pierre Boulle. And the other nominees in that category were Twelve Angry Men, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, Peyton Place, and Sayonara. Best Foreign Language Film went to Knights of Kabiria, beating out Mother India, The Devil Strikes at Night, Gates of Paris, and Nine Lives. Best Documentary Feature went to Albert Schweitzer, beating out On the Barrowy and Torero. Best Live Action Short Subject went to The Wet Back Hound, A Cherry Tale, City of Gold, Foothold, and Arctica and Portugal. Best Cartoon went to Birds Anonymous, beating One Droopy Night, Tabasco Road, Trees, and Jamaica Daddy, and The Truth About Mother Goose. Best Scoring, Malcolm Arnold's work on The Bridge on the River Kwai, beating out An Affair to Remember, Boy on a Dolphin, Perry and Raintree Country. Best Song went to All the Way from The Joker is Wild, beating out An Affair to Remember from the movie The Same Name, April Love from the movie The Same Name, Tammy from Tammy and the Bachelor, and Wild is the Wind from Wild is the Wind. Best Sound Recording 
went to Sayonara and George Groves, beating out Gunfight at the OK Corral, Less Girls, Pal Joey, and Witness for the Prosecution. Best Costume Design, The Girls. Rory Kelly took that award home, beating out An Affair to Remember. Funny Face, Pal Joey, and Raintree Country. Best Art Direction also went to Sayonara, beating out Funny Face, Lay Girl, Pal Joey, and Raintree Country. So that went to uh, Ted Hayworth for the Art Direction and Robert Priestley for the Set Direction. Best Cinematography went to Jack Hildyard for The Bridge on the River Kwai, beating out An Affair to Remember, Funny Face, Peyton Place, and Sayonara. Best Film Editing went to Peter Taylor for Bridge on the River Kwai. Beating out Gunfight at the OK Corral, Pal Joey, Sayonara, and Witness for the Prosecution. And Best Special Effects went to Walter Rossi for The Enemy Below. Beating out Louis Lichtenfield for The Spirit of St. Louis. Honorary awards went to Charles Brackett for Outstanding Service to the Academy. Bibi Kahan for Distinguished Service to the Motion Picture Industry. Gilbert M. Broncho Billy Anderson for his contributions to the development of motion pictures as entertainment, and the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers for their contributions to the advancement of the motion picture industry, and the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to Samuel Goodwin. So in the end, Bridge on the River Kwai ended up with eight nominations and seven wins. The most nominated film was Sayonara, with ten nominations and four wins. Peyton Place had nine nominations, Witness for the Prosecution had six. Four nominations each for An Affair to Remember, Funny Face, Pal Joey, and Raintree Country. Three nominations each for Twelve Angry Men, Lay Girls, and Wild as the Wind. And two each for Gunfight at the OK Corral and Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. So any thoughts on on how the Academy voted that year? I have not seen Sayonara, so I don't want, you know, I I can't dismiss out of hand something I haven't seen that what had so many nominations and quite a few wins. I will say I think Twelve Angry Men, at least out of the things that I've seen that it competed against, should have at least won two out of the three nominee or categories it was nominated in. And I think it was ignored in two categories that hit it should have been nominated in. I don't think that Henry Fonda should have beaten Alec Guinness for Best Actor, but I think that Henry Fonda's name should have been one of the nominees for Best Actor. <laughs> and it it's a, it's a surprise to me that someone like uh, Lee J. Cobb, for example, does, didn't get a Best Supporting Actor nomination for 12 Angry Men. Though that may be a case of, you know, out of that film you easily had four or five people who could have been nominated and maybe that just split it too much. But I think 12 Angry Men should have won Best Picture. I could go either way on Best Director. And, you know, unless the written screenplay had some magic to it that didn't somehow arrive on the screen, uh, I think 12 Angry Men would have had to have been the better screenplay over the bridge on the River Kwai. I tend to agree with everything you just said. As far as the 1950s are concerned, my favorite film of the decade, 12 Angry Men probably edges out Rear Window but those are the contenders. 
So while Bridge on the River Kwai is a great film, 12 Angry Men should have gone home with Best Picture. I can see you saying that director could have gone either way, given that 12 Angry Men was Sidney Lumet's directorial debut. I think that would have impressed me enough to give it to him instead of Lean, because Lean was much more established. And the screenplay, for those who haven't seen it yet, 12 Angry Men is about a jury deliberating in a trial. Mm -hmm. So it's, what, about 90 minutes, and I think 85 of them are just 12 men in the jury room. So you need phenomenal performances. You need staging. You need a tight screenplay, or that's just going to get boring, and it is not a boring film. It is one of the most engaging films I have ever seen. So they just totally knock it out of the park, and I don't see how you could do that without an incredibly strong screenplay. Whereas for Bridge on the River Kwai, there's things that could be tightened, but again, as Trey just said, without having the screenplay in hand to see how closely what we see on film aligns with it, it's hard to say definitively that it should have gone to 12 Angry Men, but it seems very likely. And yeah, for the acting of roles... Because those 12 men, like you said, you said four or five, I might have said, you know, six or seven that could have been in contention. To to steal a page from a, a friend of ours, when Paul Spataro on Is It Jaws does the Jaws ranking, you know, it has to be pretty much a flawless film. And as some of our listeners may know, as I'm watching stuff, I frequently post on the Is It Jaws Facebook page uh, what I'm watching. And when I listen, I'm watching The Bridge on the River Kwai. You know, Paul commented what a great movie it was. And I even asked him, how would you pick between the two? And he said, you know, it was too hard to call. To me, 12 Angry Men is a flawless film. Bridge on the River Kwai... I, I would agree that it's a great film, and yet William Holden seems out of place to me, and I feel like Sharp is the one that breaks Nicholson out of his zeal, because the script says it has to be Sharp, and yet the men spent maybe five minutes on screen interacting together, so I don't buy that there's this camaraderie or this bond to where Sharp would have really triggered anything in Nicholson. And, and because, because of that story beat missed out, if it had somehow been one of Nicholson's own men who had escaped, who was making the assault on the bridge, and he saw one of his own men, I think the film would have been flawless. But with it with it being sharp and those two characters not really having a relationship, you know, that that's just that one thing that make that drops it from like an A plus to an A for me and Twelve Angry Men stays at an A plus. Yeah, I can agree. I actually wonder I almost want to read the, the last chapter of the book to see if that what have I done revelation is in the novel or if it's something where they just decided they can't really make Alicanus a bad guy. Because he's such a big star, he has to see in the light. I almost would have preferred it if Nicholson was heading to defuse the detonator and the mortar that killed him just made him fall on the switch instead. So it wasn't something he was trying to do. 
even though, I mean, as we see it, it ends up as an accident, but that's where he was going anyway. So maybe without that moment of clarity, it might have been a, a stronger film, because I agree that I I didn't buy it in that moment. For comparison, I've got the cast of 12 Angry Men up here. We are talking Martin Balsam, John Fiedler, Lee J. Cobb, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Edward Benz, Jack Warden, Henry Fonda, Joseph Sweeney, Ed Begley Sr., George Voskovec, and Robert Weber as our 12 jurors in numbered order. And some people may not know them all by name, Mm -hmm. but when you sit down and watch it, it's, oh, that guy, oh, that guy, oh, like, I mean, Lee J. Cobb from Death of a Salesman, On the Waterfront, The Exorcist. And some of them people may know from lesser things in the future. I say lesser, like, you know, if you're of our age, you probably know Jack Klugman more for either the Odd Couples sitcom or Quincy M.E. But what gave him, you know, kind of the foundation to get there were things like 12 Angry Men. Yeah, that and a couple of guest spots on The Twilight Zone, but I don't know if that was before or after 12 Angry Men. Uh, Twilight Zone was on the air, but I don't remember if his first appearance was before or after this. So, yeah, it sounds like we're in agreement then that it should have gone to 12 Angry Men just because 12 Angry Men is better and not because Bridge on the River Kwai is weak. Like, I have no issues with the River Kwai nomination. And other years, I could have easily said, yeah, that should take it home. The Golden Globes agreed with the Academy. They gave Bridge on the River Kwai the best film in the drama category, beating Hatful of Rain, Sayonara, 12 Angry Men, and Witness for the Prosecution. Best Musical went to Lay Girls, beating out Don't Go Near the Water, Love in the Afternoon, Pal Joey, and Silk Stockings. They also agreed that Alec Guinness was best actor, but and at least they nominated Henry Fonda for 12 Angry Men, along with Brando for Sayonara, Franciosa for Hatful of Rain, and Lawton for Witness for the Prosecution. They agree that the best actress was Joanne Woodward. Best actor in a comedy or musical went to Frank Sinatra for Pal Joey. Best actress in a comedy or musical was a tie for Tana Elgin and Kay Kendall in Lay Girls. Best Supporting Actor went to Red Buttons for Sayonara. They also nominated Sesui Hayakawa, and they nominated Lee J. Cobb for 12 Angry Men. Best Supporting Actress, Elsa Lanchester, Witness for the Prosecution, although Miyoshi Umeki, who won the Oscar, was nominated. Best Director, they also put David Lean over Sidney Lumet. Best Foreign Language Film, they gave awards to the Confessions of Felix Kroll, Tizak, Woman in a Wedding Gown, and Yellow Crow. Best Film Promoting International Understanding was Happy Road. The Henrietta Awards went to Tony Curtis and Doris Day for the World Film Favorites. Special Achievement Awards went to Hugo Friedhofer, Zsa Gabor, Bob Hope, Leroy Prince, and Gene Simmons. And this is a year they had some television awards. They gave the Best TV Show Award to the Mickey Mouse Club. And uh, television achievements went to Jack Benny, Eddie Fisher, Alfred Hitchcock, and Mike Wallace. And new star of the year for the actors. We might have heard some of these. There's Patrick Wayne, John Saxon, and James Garner. New star of the year actress. Sandra D, Carolyn Jones, and Diane Varsi. And the Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Buddy Adler. Yeah, James Garner is certainly one. I didn't realize this was the year for him, but I could totally see him as a newcomer. 
assuming that he listens somewhere, or they listen somewhere, the Jack and Eddie boys are cheering because you just mentioned John Saxon, who in the 70s and 80s has been a journey as a journeyman actor who's been in everything from some of the jallos that they've covered on The Vault to Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. Patrick Wayne is probably the one I'm least familiar with of those three. I don't know if it was he who ended up being in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, or... Uh, yeah, he was Sinbad in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Now, the listeners have now heard what we think. If we go to the IMDb viewers, or the IMDb ratings, they actually picked the best film of the year as Maya Bazaar, which I think is a Bollywood film, and number two for the year... 12 Angry Men. Number three is Witness for the Prosecution. And then we have Piazza Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick came in at number five. And I think we can make a case that should have been on the nominations list. Do Ankan Barahath is in here. The Cranes Are Flying is number seven. Wild Strawberries and Seven Seal, both Ingmar Bergman films, came in at eight and nine. Is number 10, directed by Ilya Kazan with Andy Griffith. Oh, there's an acting nomination that they missed. Tokyo Twilight is 11. Knights of Kibiria is 12. Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is number 13. And then Bridge on the River Kwai comes in at 14. Before we go on, I will just throw this out there. I heartily recommend A Face in the Crowd. If you only know Andy Griffith from, of course, The Andy Griffith Show or Matlock, you will be in for such a surprise. Yeah, I I keep hearing wonderful things. I really need to get around to watching that DVD that I've had sitting in a drawer for a decade. Yes. I The one I would call out from this batch, aside from Paths of Glory, which we've already mentioned, Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal is incredible. It is probably in my top five of all time. I can forgive the Academy for not nominating Seventh Seal and Throne of Blood yet, because by their rules, it has to air in Los Angeles. Seventh Seal didn't do that until 1958, and Throne of Blood did not do that until 1961. So if we don't hear more about Seventh Seal next month, then that's a crime. Yeah, I I haven't seen Wild Strawberries yet, at, at least when preparing for the show. If uh, if a film pops up that wouldn't qualify for Best Picture consideration, I I skip it and leave it for one of my other viewing projects to come through and pick it up. But uh, Seventh Seal is probably one of the first foreign films I saw, and it it's so good. Yeah. If we go to Letterboxd, the Letterboxd users have voted the best film of 1957 to be 12 Angry Men. Paths of Glory is 3. Brains Are Flying is 4, Night of Kiberia 5, Seventh Seal is at 6, and Wild Strawberries is 7. Sweet Smell of Success, Piazza, Witness for the Prosecution is at 10, Throne of Blood, Face in the Crowd is number 12, then there's Tokyo Twilight, and Bridge on the River Kwai is the 14th. Interestingly, the Maya Bazaar that came in at number 1 on the IMDb is 16 here. Yeah, so this is, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai does well with all the rating forums, but it does not take the top spot. And both of these, I think these are probably the two biggest user ratings. Uh, Rotten mm-hmm. Tomatoes, I'd say, was probably number three. 
possibly more with certain demographics. But these two put 12 Angry Men and Witness for the Prosecution consistently above it among the nominations, and Paths of Glory and Face in the Crowd were maybe overlooked in the nomination process. I will even say this. I, I watched Witness for the Prosecution but because it was one of the top letterbox films that came up. So I, I normally try to watch the first uh, two or three if I can. It's a really good movie. It has strong performances. And it is a court procedural slash uh, thriller with a couple of swerves in the plot, which I don't want to spoil anything, so I don't want to go into them. I think it's probably a lesser film on repeat viewings once you know all the paths that the plot's going to take, whereas 12 Angry Men gives you the same value every time you watch it. So that, that that's why I tend to put 12 Angry Men over Witness for the Prosecution. Witness for the Prosecution, once you know the swerves, it, it's still an enjoyable ride, but it doesn't quite have the same intensity on repeat viewings like 12 Angry Men does. Just for a little bit of context, on Letterboxd, I just went to the the highest rated films of the entire decade, of the 1950s, so from 1950 to 1959. And Bridge on the River Kwai comes in at number 47 for the decade. Number one for the decade is Seven Samurai. And number two is 12 Angry Men. So by the time we get to the end of the top 12, we've got Human Condition, Ikiru, Rio North Zone, which is also from 1957. It's number two for the year. Sunset Boulevard, Tokyo Story, Paths of Glory, Human Condition 2, Road to Eternity, The World of Apu, Rear Window, and Sanao the Bailiff. Those are our top 12. The next 12, we end up with Seventh Seal, Singing in the Rain, All About Eve, Wild Strawberries, Night of the Hunter, Wages of Fear. We get into Vertigo, Ugetsu, Rashomon, Witness for the Prosecution is number 31. Throne of Blood, Face in the Crowd. And we also hit things like Ace in the Hole, Tokyo Twilight, In a Lonely Place, Some Like It Hot, and North by Northwest before we get down to Bridge on the River Kwai. I mean, I'm not sure why it resonated so much more with audiences and voters. I mean, River Kwai had a $2.8 million budget and made $30.6 million in the box office. So it was very successful, whereas... Uh, 12 Angry Men had a $337,000 budget. It's fairly low. I mean, you get really one set and a lot of cast and a water budget for all the sweat and then $2 million at the box office, which is not much. It's not in the larger scheme of things. Return-wise, well, I think uh, return-wise... Bridge on the River Kwai was probably the more fi- financially successful film. It it was. It's it, it returned about ten times the budget as opposed to about eight times for Twelve Angry Men. But 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 eight times the budget would be a success even in today's terms. So especially in today's terms, where it's often only two or three in the box office because people are way more willing to wait for home video now that it's a thing. Yeah. So eight times the budget would be fantastic by most modern measures. So I I wonder if maybe it didn't hit as well because it was based on a play that was touring at the time. 
So maybe people just saw, oh, well, I already saw that story. It's just they didn't see this cast doing the story. It could have. We are still pre what most people think of as the pre-civil rights era or the very early days of the civil rights movement. And while the person on trial in 12 Angry Men is Latino and not African-American, not, not that it matters, but for some reason, Latino was the more acceptable minority for Hollywood, I, I think, in the 50s. You know, it could have been viewed as a message film, you know. So, you know, did that get in its way? Was the political message of 12 Angry Men or the fact that it was about people being forced to confront their prejudices, did that turn people off at a time when the country very much was not about confronting its bigoted tendencies? You know, maybe we're, you and I are both comic book guys, we're still in an era to where you don't want to put uh, people of color in background scenes in comics because the distributors in the South may not carry those books. So, Yeah. Yeah, and Tolving Man does hit that. That's one of my favorite lines. I had actually pulled up the quotes on the IMDb. It, you know, juror number 10 saying, listen to me, we're this kid on trial here, his type, well, don't you know about them? There's a, a danger here. These people are dangerous. They're wrong. Listen to me. Listen. And then juror number four, quietly but firmly, I have. Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. That's one of my favorite lines of the movie. Because that mm-hmm. was, juror number 10 had just gone on an extended racist rant. Yeah, I would say, Humphrey, I think we're ready to move on to the who would we recommend this to. I think we've made our choices clear. Bridge on the River Kwai is a good war movie. And it's a war movie that's not about the front lines. It's about the prisoners. So it's a different take than a lot of the war movies. So I could easily recommend this to anyone who's interested in that. The cinematography Oscar is very well deserved. But if you are tuning in to say, what film from 1957 should I be watching? I would say 12 Angry Men. I'm a teacher and I'm very happy that the English teacher in our school, I teach math and physics, so it's harder to, to justify. The English teacher watches 12 Angry Men in class every year, and it, it's a valuable message. I, I feel kind of bad because I feel like we've taken tw- Bridge on the River Kwai and used it as why you should watch 12 Angry Men. But no, I agree. When I, when I do my viewing projects, I try to skip over things that I've watched recently within the past year or two just for the sake of time or whatnot so you know just as an example sound of music just recently came up on my to watch list and i've watched it in eight months or so when it's time for us to cover sound of music i may play certain scenes to refamiliarize myself but i probably won't watch the whole movie again i watched 12 angry men for the first time probably two or so years ago i loved it my daughter started taking an interest in drama, I said, well, let me show you (laughs) the realization of a great play. I made her watch it. I watched it again in preparation for this podcast. I know it, 
just because it was nominated and it was in the letterbox top three again. So anytime I have an excuse to watch 12 Angry Men, I do. That being said, Bridge on the River Kwai, still a great movie, despite some of the issues that I've had with it. Uh, We mentioned the tune, you know, the whole doo-doo, doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. You know, uh, that... uh, uh, that's this film, it, you know, so everybody kind of recognizes that tune. You know, Star Wars is very big with our crowd. Not that Alec Guinness's performance, anything was wrong with his performance of Obi-Wan Kenobi, but if you want to see some of the work that led him to being Sir Alec Guinness, this film is um, a prime example. And he is great in it. And yes, it's a war film, but it's also a wonderful examination of how pride can lead to obsession and how that can lead to someone's downfall, not not in a, uh, I mean, it, it ultimately does lead to his death, but that's not necessarily in the sense that I meant, but in the sense of you can suddenly wake up one day and not recognize the kind of person that you are. And that's the journey that Nicholson um, goes through here. And it's worth watching the film just to watch that journey. You know, you're absolutely right. Today we would look at the officers shouldn't work. But, you know, we all know the Geneva Convention is supposed to be a good thing. And good people are supposed to follow the Geneva Convention. So when he takes that stand and the suffering that he and his officers go through through the first half of the film, you're completely on his, you know, you're completely on his side. And you can even see him having the, I will get a moral, uh, or not a moral, uh, a morale victory. I will get, I will subtly take over this camp by showing the British are better than the Japanese. We can build this bridge where they can't without even thinking of what does building the bridge mean. You you can see that subtle shift happen. So, I mean, it's worth watching the film for that. Oh, yeah. And that's something that was missed by the synopsis. Probably, I would say, the most important point in the story that the Wikipedia synopsis didn't mention. When that bridge gets built, they put a plaque on it saying, this is brilliant by the British army under the command of Commander Nicholson. Like he, and he has a moment with Sato on the bridge saying, you get to a point in your life where you're wondering, what did it mean? So he's trying to use this bridge as a testament to say, hey, I was a person. I left a mark on this world. He's, he's afraid of being inconsequential. So yeah, his emotional journey is great, even if that final turn might have worked better with another source, either more time with Shears at the start of the film, or if it was somebody else that snapped him out of it. But, yeah, so I, neither of us are saying don't watch Bridge on the River Kwai. It is a very good film that deserved to win more than some of the other films that have won in the past. Mm-hmm. To me, there's no question that this beats, you know, your cavalcades and your Cimarrons and a lot of these, but it just doesn't beat 12 Angry Men. All right, so uh, I think with that, unless you have any final thoughts, I think it's about time to wrap up. No, I think we covered it. All right, so once more, we will be back next month when we look at the winner 
of the 31st Annual Academy Awards. So I believe this is going to be a lighter film, but it's also one I haven't seen yet. Next year's winner is Gigi, which was nominated against Anti-Mame, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Defiant Ones, and Separate Tables. So you can join us for that in about a month's time. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.